Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number one, Genesis, the Introduction. Well, today we're going to start a journey that millions of Hebrews have taken over the last 3,000 years. And the earliest Christians in the 1st and 2nd century did as well. But sadly, since around the time of Constantine, Gentile believers have taken a different road. Now, we're going to study the Torah, which is the first and oldest section of the original Hebrew Bible. Torah is a word that few Christians have ever heard of, and even fewer have any idea what it actually is. The Torah is the Hebrew name for the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to start at the beginning, at Genesis 1.1. We're going to go right on through Deuteronomy. And we're going to do something a little different, though. We're going to add the Jewishness back into our Bibles that's been removed for the last 1900 years. Why would we do that? Because it's only within the Hebrew culture and language that the Torah was created. It's only within that same cultural context that we can gain a proper understanding of what God is telling us. In fact, the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, was written by Hebrews who were entirely immersed in Hebrew culture. It was Moses, a Hebrew, who received the Torah from God on Mount Sinai around 1400 B.C. by our modern calendars. And although we typically think of Moses as receiving only those two stone tablets that contain the Ten Commandments as Israel was leaving their bondage in Egypt, in fact, those Ten Commandments were but the first of several hundred instructions that Moses received in those several trips up and down that smoking mountain. Now Moses actually received most, but not all, of what is now the first five books of what Christians call the Old Testament. Now Torah is not a word that you'll find in our modern Bibles, and it's a tragedy that this is the case. Okay? In general, where in the original ancient texts the word Torah appears, today you'll find the word law in its place. Now this is sad. Maybe it's even an intentional mistranslation, which first happened when the scriptures were translated to Greek. And it was fostered by the desire of the Gentile-dominated church to distance itself from the Jewish people. Now, Torah does not mean law. In a simplistic sense, it means teaching or it means instruction. But in a curious irony, even the Jews themselves began to adopt the view that the Torah was law and even in time began to apply the term Torah to all manner of religious writings to the point that Judaism has become a religion based primarily on the doctrines of men rather than the word of God. Now let me explain what's happened to the rather sloppy habit of applying the word Torah 
to any and every Jewish writing that even refers to the Holy Scripture by beginning with this analogy. Over a hundred years ago, a company in Atlanta, Georgia, wanted to join in the new and growing market for flavored but non-alcoholic beverages. Instead of hard liquor, they formulated a tasty addition to the soft drink market. It was called Coca-Cola, and it was an immediate hit. Now, though originally it was marketed as a stimulant, its real niche was simply as a great-tasting beverage. And as the U.S. began to enter a period of remarkable growth and prosperity, the demand for Coca-Cola skyrocketed, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, Coca-Cola so dominated the soft drink market that a curious thing happened. It garnered a nickname. Coke. Coke became such a ubiquitous household word that in time, Coke no longer simply meant a specific brand of cola drink. It was applied generically to all soft drinks. A common conversation you might have engaged in sounds something like this. Husband, I'm thirsty. Let's stop and get a Coke. Wife, okay, sounds good to me. Husband, good. What type of Coke would you like? Wife, I'd like a root beer. <laughs> Sound familiar? Now, any American would perfectly understand that dialogue, not find it at all odd. They know full well that a Coca-Cola and a root beer are not the same thing. But they also know that Coke, in our modern vernacular, can mean any soft drink, and so there's no trouble getting our meaning across when we talk about it in a conversation. Well, the word Torah operates in the same way. Originally, the Hebrews called those five books given to Moses the Torah. And in centuries past, two other groups of Hebrew writings were created, deemed to be inspired of God, and therefore Holy Scripture. The prophets, they're called, and the writings. The prophets are books like Amos and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jonah. And the writings include a variety of books like Song of Songs, Ecclesiastic, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Book of Ruth. And even though the Hebrews now had three separately defined groups of scriptures, the Ketuvim, meaning the writings, the Nevaim, meaning the prophets, and the Torah, that which was given up to Moses on Mount Sinai, at some point in their everyday common conversation, they began referring to any of the Holy Scriptures as Torah. So the original Torah from Moses was Torah. All the newer scriptures were Torah. It's not so hard to understand, is it? But it gets more complicated. During that same time that the Torah, the Ketuvim, the Nevaim were created and added to, another set of, of authoritative extra-biblical thought was being created, and this was called tradition. It was also known as oral law, oral tradition, oral Torah. Oral because rather than being written down for many centuries, it was handed down verbally. Also because it was thought to have been given to Moses 
um, in a form later on after Mount Sinai from God. Well, in common day Christianese, we could properly equate our church doctrines with Hebrew tradition. In other words, tradition is not scripture, it's our denominational beliefs. It's our rulings and interpretations of scripture. It's the same idea with Hebrew tradition. So as time rolled along, the Hebrew doctrines, these oral traditions, this oral Torah, started carrying more and more weight among the Hebrew religious leaders. Eventually, in common everyday conversation among the Jews, the term Torah pretty much came to mean anything that had to do with the entire body of scripture and the entire body of oral traditions. Kind of an unfortunate blurring of that original meaning for sure. Well the Hebrews of Christ's day and those of hundreds of years earlier well understood what each other meant all right, when they discussed Torah among themselves. They knew by the context of their conversation when Torah meant the original scriptures like given to Moses and what it meant uh, when it meant any of the other re, uh, religious literature and rulings that they had. Unfortunately, we cannot overlook the fact that by Christ's day, Hebrew tradition had become more important in the life of the Jewish people than God's holy word. Later, as Gentiles entered the picture, following Christ's death, these same Gentiles, who were ignorant of the intricacies of Jewish culture and the Hebrew language, got confused about the definitions and the intent of the word Torah. And even though a small handful of Bible scholars have made an attempt to correct this error, church leaders and teachers have been kind of reluctant to pick it up. Now today, what we Christians call the Old Testament, Jews now call the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Okay? The Tanakh is an invented word. It takes the T from Torah, the N from Nevi'im, the K from Ketuvim, adds a couple of vowel sounds, and presto, you got Tanakh. So the Hebrew Tanakh and the Christian Old Testament are the same thing. Except in some cases the books contained within them may be arranged in a slightly different order. Well, the traditions have mostly been handed down by word of mouth for generations. But they were eventually formalized and written down. And although these thoughts and religious rulings of the ancient rabbis are still held in the greatest esteem, this body of thought is constantly going, undergoing additions because it's considered to be a living document. The best way to think of all these traditions is as commentary by, religi by Jewish religious authorities. Commentary that consists of rulings and teachings and procedures, ways of behavior. Okay. The fully compiled works of tradition or oral Torah became what is now called the Talmud. And to further complicate that, there are two major competing versions of the Talmud. The Babylonian and the Jerusalem. And each is an enormous work that comprises many volumes. 
So let's be clear. The Tanakh, which is also known as the Hebrew Bible, is simply another name for our current Old Testament. Okay. The Torah is but the first five books of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. The Talmud is not Holy Scripture at all. It's just a huge collection of Jewish religious commentary and behavioral requirements. Now, one of the curiosities of modern Christianity is that the Old Testament has been all but forgotten. Okay, I think it might be fair to say that in some circles it has even become an embarrassment as far as some denominations are concerned. The common statement from the church today is, is that we are a New Testament church with the implication being that either the Old Testament isn't for us or that it's a long past era. In seminary talk, they call it a past dispensation. So the modern Christian viewpoint is generally that the Old Testament is obsolete for true believers. It's present in our Bibles only as interesting but irrelevant history. And the New Testament is current and contemporary, having superseded the Old. Nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, the title of Old Testament is purely man-made. It's a relatively modern title given to that section of the Bible. There is no such thing as the Old Testament as far as the Bible is concerned. The words Old Testament never appear in the Bible. Okay? The institutional church concept behind the names of what we've come to think of as the two halves of the Bible is that the Old Testament refers to the covenants made between God and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and the New Testament refers to the covenants between God and mankind in general through Christ. Okay? So if one is inclined to think in those kinds of terms of the Bible consisting of two separate testaments, it would be better, I think, to, to think of the biblical division as the earlier and the later testaments, indicating, indicating progressive revelation, rather than old and new, indicating antiquated and modern. And by the way, testaments mean covenants. They're synonymous terms in the Bible. Now in reality, there are new, oh, no new covenants that have replaced the original covenants, but, the, but some portions of those biblical covenants have been transformed with the advent of the long foretold Messiah. Even Yeshua himself, when asked directly if the law was now null and void with his coming, answered in about as forceful a way as one can imagine, and he did this smack in the middle of his famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Matthew 5, 17 through 19. You don't have to turn there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I tell you the truth that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And 
anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Christ did not come to do away with or abolish or diminish the Torah. He came to complete it. Not complete it in the sense of finishing it. All right? Or finishing in the sense of ending it. See, in many Bibles, the word fulfill is used instead of complete. And the Greek word that's being translated here is pleru. P-L-E-R-O-O. Pleru. Any good concordance will explain that pleru means to fill up to accomplish something. But in our modern English vernacular, fulfill often gives the sense of something that's ended and over and finished. Even though pleru has the intended meaning of to fill up. You know, pleru would be a good word to say to a, an attendant at the gas station, if there weren't those kinds of people anymore, because it has the sense of filler up. Christ came to fill up the Torah full of meaning. You, to bring it to its fullest extent. When you ask the gas attendant to fill up your car, you certainly don't mean that he should bring your gas tank to an end, do you? You mean, give you all he can give you. Fill it all up to the top. That gives you an idea of what the Greek word pleru means and what those Jews well understood Christ to mean when he first uttered those words. Now the two testaments earlier and later work together. You can't separate them as two distinct entities as has been attempted for centuries. The Old Testament is the foundation of the Bible. The Old Testament sets the stage for the New. The earlier Testament lays down all the premises by which we can properly understand the later Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible, Act 1. The New Testament was formed based on the teachings and the principles from the Old Testament. The New Testament is a continuation of the so-called Old Testament. The New Testament is the Bible, Act 2. In fact, better than 50% of the statements in the New Testament are but quotes from the Old. They are completely intertwined and interdependent. It's pretty tough to read any book or watch any play or go to any movie and start in the middle. You know, we may well get something out of it, but we are just as likely to take the ending part, the part that we see, in the wrong context and come to some conclusions that are a few degrees off course. All right, and thereby we miss the intent of the Creator. That's what we do when we attempt to understand the Bible by beginning at the book of Matthew and then completely foregoing the Old Testament. 
But let me tell you something that you might have never considered. The Bible that Jesus and his earliest disciples and all the gospel writers, Paul, people, even John the Revelator, studied from and taught from, was the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Let that sink in for a minute. There was no New Testament when any writer of the Bible was alive. The only Bible that existed for any of these men, including our Messiah, was the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And all references to Scripture, Holy Scripture, um, in the Bible, by Jesus or any New Testament author, was to the only Bible that existed. The Old Testament. The admonition we get in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, was specifically referring to the Hebrew Bible because it's all that existed. There wasn't anything else. Now, while we can have no problem at all in accepting the New Testament as holy and inspired of God, entirely, of course, belonging in our Bibles. That statement from Paul to Timothy was in no way referring to something that didn't even exist yet. It wasn't meant to be a prophetic statement. Paul wasn't speaking to a future time when there would eventually be such a thing as a New Testament. He was speaking about what existed. What the people could read right then. The Torah, the writings, the prophets. Paul had no inkling, and he gives no indication anywhere that several decades after his death and their death, that indeed there would be additional writings added to the holy canon of the Bible, some of them his own. Writings that we today collectively call the New Testament. Now, in fact, in its correct application, and it would help us a lot when reading the New Testament, if we could grasp this, Biblically speaking, the word scripture or holy scripture only refers to what we call the Old Testament. Technically, and any good Bible scholar will tell you this, technically, the only scripture that exists even today is the Old Testament. The New Testament, fully inspired of God, is just that, the New Testament we would gain far more understanding of the Bible if we could dispense with this term, Old Testament, and just call it what Jesus and all the apostles called it. The Scriptures. That's what they called it. So to be clear, if we're going to see our Christian Bible as consisting of two parts, we'd be far better off to use the same words that they used in the Bible and to call the first part, the Scriptures, and the second part, the New Testament. And matter of fact, there are some Bibles today that begin to do exactly that, to try to straighten this out. Now, I hope this makes the impact on you that I intended. Okay? While it's been the mode of the church for centuries to imply, if not outright state, that the Old Testament is of no value to a modern believer, 
and that the Old Testament God principles don't even apply since the advent of Christ, it was the Old Testament that the original group of 12 disciples from Christ carried around under their arm and taught everybody from. It was also what Jesus himself taught and quoted and venerated so highly. The Hebrew Bible is what the apostles taught the gospel message from to both Jews and Gentiles. And that's because the gospel message is an Old Testament message. That's right. The complete gospel is defined and predicted in the Old Testament. Yeshua didn't write a new gospel. He fulfilled that which was previously written about by the writers of the Old Testament. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5, 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how are you going to believe my words? Saying, if you believed Moses, was a common way of speaking for that day. It was kind of an idiom that meant, if you believed the Torah. Moses, the law, the Torah were all interchangeable terms to the Jewish people. But the point is that Christ says, Moses wrote of me. It is self-evident that Christ was explaining that if we don't believe or even know what Moses wrote, and it was Moses who wrote the Torah, how are we going to place what Jesus said into any kind of meaningful context? See, the Old Testament and the the Torah that we're going to study are full of references to the coming Messiah and to the spiritual principles that he's going to raise to the highest level of significance. I'm going to point these out as we come across them and connect all the dots. Now, as the Old Testament is the foundation for the New, the Torah is the foundation of the entire Bible. Even someone who's never studied the Bible is aware that Genesis is the story of beginnings. It tells of God creating the world. How do we start to study anything, let alone trying to comprehend God, if we don't begin at the beginning? That's what we're going to do in Torah class. Now let's set up a few ground rules. That is, the basis on which our Torah study is going to proceed. First of all, I'm not here to persuade anybody about the truth of the Holy Scripture. While non-believers are very welcome here, this is not a seekers-oriented class whereby we attempt to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. We begin with the assumption that the Bible is God's Word and it's all true. All of it. If the Bible isn't true, then we might as well all pack up and go home because we're wasting our time on what's nothing more than a glorified book of religious philosophy. 
So I have no intention of justifying the Holy Scriptures by trying to offer scientific proofs about God creating the world, even though there's many. Science is as inferior to God as we are. I'm not going to explain that maybe there are a huge frozen comet brought all the water necessary to create the oceans or why the Bible doesn't precisely mention dinosaurs or whether the Big Bang is correct. In other words, this is not going to be a class on creation theory. We won't get into young earth, old earth debates. I may touch on this lightly by incorporating some interesting new discoveries, but it's only going to be in the context of explaining a point. Not as an attempt to prove anything. This how much, however, is non-negotiable. God created everything from nothing. He did it exactly the way He wanted to do it, and He was fully capable to do it. Second, we're going to read every single word of the Torah. We're not going to skip anything, not a single verse. I will read the Bible passages out loud and ask you to follow along in your Bibles. We're going to move fairly rapidly sometimes. Other times we're going to go slow. And some, at some points we're going to stop and actually have a lesson that could last the entire hour on a specific topic, such as, say, the menorah or the tabernacle or a couple of other things that are of vital importance because of the times we're in, yet things we've probably never heard about in our churches. This is an in-depth study that I promise you will challenge your thinking, but it will also build your faith. Third, I'm going to read mostly out of the complete Jewish Bible. Now, one reason for this is that it is not the official Bible translation for any denomination that I'm aware of. And this is intentional. This class isn't about teaching you from the standpoint of traditions and doctrines. I don't care whether you're Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, Lutheran, or Jewish. You're going to find common ground here. Let me be perfectly clear. You do not have to have this same Bible in order to do just fine in this class. Any competent standard version that you have is fine. However, the words may read slightly different, particularly because of the names of people and places in the Bible that I'm going to read from will give the original Hebrew name rather than the English version of that name. Now, this may also sound slightly different than your version because the Old Testament portion of the complete Jewish Bible is taken from the original Hebrew texts. Many translations today are taken from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew written more than two centuries before Christ was born. If you'd like to use the complete Jewish Bible, we offer them at Holy Land Marketplace. Okay, let me stress again, it's not necessary. Okay, that said, if you don't have this particular Bible version and you can afford the 25 bucks to get one, I think you'd find it a very worthwhile addition to your study materials. Fourth, at times I'm going to reveal to you certain words in Hebrew 
because they add a great deal to our understanding. Now, oftentimes, I've found that looking at the Hebrew is like going from black and white TV to color. What you see in black and white isn't wrong. It just doesn't give you the depth that color does. What you're going to soon learn in Torah class is that the Hebrew language have certain words that simply don't have nice, neat English equivalents. The word Torah is itself a good example of that, as is the common Hebrew expression Shalom. Okay, And these are just the tip of the iceberg. The other thing to realize is that just as many important Hebrew words in the scriptures do not have good English equivalents, they also don't have good Greek equivalents. So when the Bible was translated from Hebrew to Greek, and then from Greek to Latin, and then from Latin to English, much depth and understanding can get lost. We're going to do our best to try and recover at least some of that depth. Fifth, my goal is that we have continuity. When studied properly, the Torah flows like a beautiful river. Okay. Too often the Old Testament is presented as this series of interesting but unrelated stories. Actually, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, is very much, though not entirely, in chronological order. And if I may make a generalization, a good way to look at the Hebrew Bible is as God presenting himself to mankind, using the history of Israel as the vehicle. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is very much a history lesson. It's the history of Israel. It's the history of the Jewish people. And it's our Christian history because it was out of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew religion that Christianity came to be. Remember, Christ was a Jew. Born to Jewish parents. Raised in the Holy Lands. He was an observant Jew in every way. Most of the great stories and events we read about Christ occurred during the required pilgrimage festivals to Jerusalem. He was going there to celebrate one biblical feast or another. And this was so he would be in compliance with the laws of Moses. The first several thousand believers of Jesus as Lord and Savior were all Jews and were told that they all remained zealous for the Torah. Sixth, we need to understand that the Torah is first and primarily a manual for living the redeemed life that God intended for mankind to live. The three million or so Israelites that Moses led through that desert wilderness to the promised land had come from four centuries of life in Egypt. They were a rabble that had thoroughly opted for the ways of the Egyptians. By giving Moses the Torah, 
God explained to Israel the beginning of everything. Who He was. Why the world had arrived at the corrupt place it had. And how to live a righteous life. What's a righteous life? It's you living in harmony with God. That's a righteous life. These things have not changed. Seventh, the Torah is, as is all the Bible, literal. It means what it says. It says what it means. But let me explain what literal means when dealing with the Bible. Just as in our everyday conversations, we at times sprinkle in idioms and puns. We use sayings that only those within our common culture can understand. Some of those sayings are local, unique to the South or to the Northeast or so on. Now to make this point, I like to use the example of this common phrase we hear, go fly a kite. That is, somebody asks you to do something for him or her and you say, eh, go fly a kite. Now all Americans know what that means. It is in the most basic sense a humorous way to say no. Further, it can mean that the idea itself is ludicrous or perhaps offensive. It's not even worth considering. But if I responded with go fly a kite to a Frenchman or a Brazilian or a Mexican, they'd be pretty perplexed with my answer. It would make no sense to them. What does kite flying have to do with anything they just asked me about? It's the same way with many biblical Hebrew words and phrases. They carried a perfectly clear meaning at one time. And in a specific culture, but due to our 21st century Western ears, it just doesn't compute. So literal does not necessarily mean word for word. If we took go fly a kite word for word, we'd be in trouble. I'm sure glad the Bible doesn't use the idiom go fly a kite because no doubt we'd have kite flying sacraments in many churches today. Can't start a service without first flying our kite. So literal therefore means the literal meaning as intended by the author within the context of the culture it was created. And in the case of the Bible, the culture was exclusively Hebrew and that Hebrew culture changed and evolved dramatically over the 1500 years that the writings of the Bible occurred. That is to say, the Hebrew culture at the time of Abraham bore no resemblance to the Hebrew culture in Moses' era. And Moses' Hebrew culture bore no resemblance to the Hebrew culture in the time of Christ. All that said, most of the time, the literal meaning in the Bible is word for word. The trick is that one must understand the Hebrew culture 
and all of its various eras to understand what is being communicated. And to complicate matters, there's also a certain amount of symbolism in the Bible. And there's poetry. And there's straightforward history. And there are parables. And there are metaphors. There's figurative speech. There's, there's several other literary devices as well. Now most of these literary devices are reasonably identifiable. But modern Gentile Christianity has tended to treat much of the more difficult parts of the Old Testament as just allegorical statements. When in fact they're not allegory at all. There is a small amount of allegory in the Old Testament. Very little. And I'll identify it when we come across it. But generally speaking, the translation problems and the resulting confused exegesis of many Hebrew Bible passages have been a lack of understanding of what was said. And much of that is due to a reluctance to research and study the, Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew culture. Rather, there's also been a not-so-subtle attempt over the centuries to kind of twist and turn the Bible into something that agrees with some preconceived and untouchable denominational church doctrines. Now, we're not going to approach the Bible in that manner in our study. Rather, we're going to take the scriptures on their own terms. We're going to deal with them head-on, even with some of the really difficult parts. Now, one other thing about the word literal. Many phrases in the Bible are both literal and symbolic. Now, that is, they mean exactly what they say, and yet, on another level, they're symbolic of something even larger. Now, you're going to also find this rather inscrutable duality occurring within biblical prophecy, because many prophecies happen... And they happen again at a far later time in history. So rather than going into examples right now, I'm, I'm going to try to point some of these out as we progress. Eighth. Torah class is not going to answer every question you have about God. There are many matters in the Bible that are simply left open-ended. Some matters aren't addressed at all. Others are incomplete. A good example is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, the Ruach HaKodesh. The Holy Spirit is mentioned, very matter-of-factly, a number of times in the Tanakh. And this person or attribute of God is undeniable. But there's very little detail about the Holy Spirit that's given in the Bible. Much of what we think we know about the Holy Spirit comes from religious leaders' assumptions. They're conclusions drawn from speculations. Because the biblical information on that important subject is limited. Most of what the modern church says about the Holy Spirit comes from traditions which have formed our doctrines. Now, I tend to choose to let these sorts of mysteries remain mysteries. Now, at times, we'll speculate. We will speculate. 
but it's going to be presented as speculation or as my personal opinion, not divine truth. Sometimes that speculation is going to be in the form of what some of the great Hebrew sages of ancient times thought about a particular subject. In fact, I'm going to incorporate that kind of information on a number of occasions. Because if nothing else, it illustrates how the Hebrew mind operated in certain eras. Now get ready for one of the most intense and exciting rides of your life. I will tell you, a man in his 70s who had been coming to Torah class regularly for a long time, a man who is a long-time Christian, a lay leader, a former missionary, told me not, not, not too long ago that he has learned more about who God is by studying the Torah than at any time in his life. What you get from all this is going to be up to you. I hope you commit this coming journey that you have in studying God's Torah to much prayer and personal dedication. If you'll do that, I think you're going to find it life-changing. We'll see you next week when we start with Genesis 1-1.